hello and welcome to our podcast. We hope it encourages and inspires you. Please head to our website for more information on what is happening at Ashburton New Life or to get in touch. One of our team would love to talk to you. Here's today's message. Good morning. That was a nice welcome. Thank you. Wasn't that worship amazing this morning? Okay, now the reason I bring up my notes up like that is not because um, I don't know how to use a computer, it's because I simply don't trust them. Once you're up here, there's nothing you can do if they say, nah, not today. <laughs> so that's why. Tanikoto, tanikoto, tanikoto. No mai, harimai. Ko Sharon Bailey toku ingwa. So I'm Sharon Bailey, I'm married to David here in the front row. And thank you, Mel and Megan, for joining us. It gets lonely there in the front when there's no one there to keep you company. <laughs> I've been married to David for over 36 years. And today, as Megan said, we start a new series, and it's Women of the Bible. And so how appropriate, um, since it's also Mother's Day. And studying and teaching about women of the Bible is something that I have long been passionate about. Historically, we see motherhood is often undermined as a secondary role for secondary citizens. And of course, that's a pack of lies from the devil himself and contradictory to God's plan. Um, Because God's plan, but these things always have a way of sneaking in. The devil is not a gentleman. So now I'm a mother of two adult sons and a granny to three little ones. And I believe that it's one of the most important roles we can ever fulfill, and that's to raise our children well. The Apostle John wrote, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth or walking with the Lord. Now, I admire both my daughters-in-laws enormously. They're beautiful mothers, and I thank God for them daily. But you know what? They're always tired. And even with the help of their husbands, they're so often exhausted. Being on duty 24-7, seven days a week, whether you're well or sick, out at work or working at home, mothering is relentless and it's beyond exhausting. Is there anybody here who actually agrees? Thank you. (laughs) Now, little ones are totally gorgeous, but they are cesspools of disease. They bring every sickness home. I mean, they make you all sick. So even when you want to hide under the blankets and leave the world for a few hours to rest and sleep and you know, get over your own sickness, you've got them next to you, whinging and coughing and spewing into your blankets and needing cuddles and nappy changes and puke bowls taken away and clothes changed. Sounds like some people know what I'm talking about. When I say it like this, you wonder why we actually want any more. My husband always says, how do women come back for a second one? Like that first time, it's so... But you know, we do because that's how God made us. And that's central to his original blueprint, and that's the direction I'm heading today. So the title of my message is God's Blueprint for Women. Most kids love their dads every bit as much as their mums, no no mistake about that, but there are times when absolutely no one but mum can cut it. Anybody identify? (laughs) And especially when the whole family is sick. And this is where grandparents, aunties, uncles, people who haven't maybe had their own children or don't have their own little ones now, but this is where you come in. This is where the rest of us have a role to reinforce the troops, take the kids out, give the grandparents and give the parents some recovery time and some space. 
When I was growing up, um, my family were culturally Christian, but not churchgoers. But mum taught my sister and myself to pray at a very early age. And then sadly, she wandered away from her faith until she was about 50. But that early start that she gave us meant that my sister and I never stopped praying. And the seeds planted so early have made it easy for us to receive the Lord as soon as his salvation plan was made known to us as, te- as um, primary school or teenagers. And even though I knew growing up that I was loved and my home was very caring and loving and kind, I was a very fractious little f- and fearful little girl. Um, I was afraid of the dark and honestly I was afraid of everything. Things that I could see, things that I couldn't, things that I imagined. And there was no video games and TV growing up. We didn't have a television, so it wasn't that. Maybe I could sense things in the um, supernatural, but children have a heart that's ready for God. And I grew up in a very racist, very sexist society. That was Rhodesia then and Zimbabwe now. And the world outside of home could be a violent place. Our country was at war. We had a civil war for 15 years. And in my heart, I knew that these things were wrong. And then as I grew older and I became a Christian, and I, was, I used to read my Bible, and I came across some of the hard passages, and they actually made me sad and confused and angry at the injustices that I saw, and especially at those perpetrated against girls and women. And I said, does God really love girls? Does he really love women? Um, does he love me? And if he does, how can he let these things happen? And then during my university years, the Apostle Paul and I had some serious disputes over his ideas. I think we broke up at one point and I refused to read his writings, but we've made up since then. The real problem wasn't actually God's chosen messenger, Paul. The problem was how we read and interpret the Bible and how I read it at that point. You see, recognising that our own background, our home life, our experiences, and the society we grow up in affects how we read and interpret the Bible. This is part of an approach called hermeneutics, where we need to actually learn how to read the Bible. So at first reading of an Old Testament passage from a modern perspective, we can see God maybe seeming unjust, angry, cruel, oh, human rights violations. But if we change our approach we could let our eyes see with a different perspective. And we can read the commentaries of scholars who've studied it, read other scriptures around it and related to it, raise questions, go back to it, try to understand, especially in the context that it was written. Um, And if we do this, we can gain a far better understanding of the difficult passages and how they actually fit into the whole Bible narrative. When you start to look at women in the Bible, most of the first thing you notice or one of the first things you notice is this. They're all described by their roles. Servant girls, slaves, widows, virgin daughters, wives, prostitutes, sinful women. And often they're just depicted as commodities and belongings. The Hebrew Bible, that's the origin of ours today, is a compilation of a whole heap of ancient scrolls. And they came out of the late Bronze Age and the ancient Greek world which had a very long history of brutal and mostly male-dominated societies, where women were socially used and abused for thousands of years, and women were not educated and only men did the writing. So we need to have this background information when we're reading scripture, because if you know it was written by men who grew up in a very patriarchal, male-dominated world, 
we also start to find out that the Hebrew culture, which is where ours comes from, was actually a lot better for women than those around it. For example, the Hebrew nation was the only one that banned outright the abusive practices of prostitution. All the other civilizations were totally good with child slavery and prostitution. And in the 5th century BC, the Babylonian culture actually forced every woman in the country to go to the temple of Venus to consort with a stranger. Some even stayed there for years before being released. So that's awful. But wait, there's good news. There's more. <laughs> God didn't start the world like that, amen? And he never designed it like that. And he did not condone it. And God never will. That's the good news. You know, 50% of God's creation are women. And about half of his church are women. But 100% of his church are loved equally by God. Can I get an amen for that? And that's the good news of Jesus Christ. So this Mother's Day, I'm going to look at a few prominent women who were mothers, namely Eve, the mother of all the nations, Lois and Eunice. And it all began in the Garden of Eden. We've got no idea how long they actually lived there, but Adam and Eve had been placed in the garden for a purpose. So we're going to go to Genesis 1 and verse 26. And then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Note the plural there. And then the identical commission is given to male and female, and it goes like this. So that they may rule, that means have dominion, over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals, etc. Verse 27. And so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. You know, the mandate of being fruitful, to increase in number, to rule, and to subdue, is handed down jointly to both the men and the women, to the man and the woman together. And being fruitful, what does that mean? If we look at Galatians 5, uh, it tells us that if you bear fruit, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, faithfulness. So the order here is important. You see, when our relationship with God and our life partner is bearing fruit, and that's what he told Adam and Eve to go and do, bear fruit, then we're ready to do the next step. Multiply, go and have children, have beautiful families. And so that's the next instruction. So having kids is in the DNA and the blueprint of humanity. And then finally, God told them to go and have dominion over the earth. Now, dominion is not domination. It means caring for and protecting and being great stewards of the earth. See, it's God's perfect plan, and there was no conflict. There was no dom domination. There was no exploitation of the earth. There was no exploitation of other people. And in verse 31, God saw all that he'd made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So God's plan is really beautiful. His, his plan for mankind is just perfect. So whenever we have many questions, any questions about Bible texts, a really good practice is to apply what's called the law of first reference. Now, what that means 
is that you go back and you look at the very first time that God mentioned something in the Bible, in the scriptures. And this is here in Genesis. It's God's blueprint for people. So men and women were living in harmony, doing their God jobs. That's the blueprint, isn't it? And it's beautiful. And chapter 1 of Genesis gives the overview, but then chapter 2, we go into the detail of what transpired. And the man is made from dust, and he's given this instruction, and it's a command. The Lord, this is Genesis 2, 15 to 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now that opens up a whole new um, study on free will. God gives them the opportunity to disobey, but he asks them not to. Don't trim that tree. So Adam is clearly given the responsibility and the instruction about the one tree he's not permitted to eat. He knows the number one rule. He knows the consequence of disobedience. Um, and Adam gets to name all the animals, and God looks for a mate for him, but there isn't one suitable. And the Lord God said, it's the only time he says it's not good. He said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper, an easier suitable for him. So the woman is made from his rib. She's not from his head to rule over him. She's not from his feet to be trodden on, but she's from his side to walk beside him. And the Hebrew word for her role is Ezer. He said he's going to make her an Ezer, make Adam an Ezer. Now, the English translation of helper, the word helper, is actually too small. It doesn't really explain the Hebrew word Ezer because this word actually means an ally, a rescuer, a power, or a strength. We know this because the word's used only 22 times in the Old Testament, and twice it's used um, to, describe, to talk about Eve, the woman, and 18 times to describe God, Yahweh, the helper and rescuer of the people, and twice for other things. So in Psalm 33 is an example, our soul waits for Yahweh, he is our Ezer, our help and our shield. You see the difference in the word? It's a very big word. So we know what happens next. In chapter 3, the devil comes in and disguised as something beautiful. They use the word serpent, but I am pretty sure a serpent was not a snake. There's nobody who's going to get seduced by a snake. Satan is described as an angel of light. So he would have come in as something very beautiful in disguise, and he's able to seduce both the man and the woman into sin. So the next verse is, is just so sad. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. But here's where it breaks down. And also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. So look at this. She was in the midst of being tempted to do wrong and Adam failed to be her easer. He didn't come in as her rescuer and her strength. He actually joined her. He, had, um, he was given the law. He was given the rule. He was given the consequence first. But not only did he watch, but he became an active participant. You know, and immediately after that, the evil one had, had played them both, and then they turned on each other. And Adam blamed Eve, and he accused God. It was your fault. You made that woman. You gave her to me. What did you think you were doing? And Eve turns and says, oh, it was a snake. It was a serpent. Well, it was. 
But for every action, there's a reaction. And so in chapter 3, verse 14, the Lord said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. And in the Old Testament, being cursed includes a loss of everything significant, a lowering to the most menial of positions. So the serpent is going to crawl in his belly and eventually be crushed. In my heart, I still don't think that's really a snake. I think that's, it's using the analogy that he's going to be like that. Satan is now the lowest of the low. You can't get below that in God's perspective. And so Satan says, to, um, so to Satan, God says, you will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. And this is not about people hating snakes, okay? And he says, between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. But the serpent is actually the devil or Satan, and there will forever be enmity between the woman's offspring, that's mankind, and Satan, the evil one, the enemy of God. And then the singular word is used, and it's prophetic of redemption. He will crush your head. Who's he? He is Jesus. And you will strike his heel. Jesus is the offspring of the woman. And the devil strikes his heel, which is symbolic of the suffering of Christ on the cross. But he will crush your head. And that's what Christ does. He crushes the devil. And that's forever. Amen. So the rest of the curses are actually, they're really prophetic. Because remember that God loves, loves, loves his people. His heart would have broken for what they did. But they have let the satanic enemy into the world. They have allowed sin to ruin their lives. And a natural consequence of sin is going to be pain and suffering and labor and labor in childbirth and blood and sweat and tears. That's what's going to follow an eventual death. It's not God's plan. That's the consequence of what the humans chose. It's horrible. So the evil one brings sin into the world through tempting Eve, the first woman, and her husband who was with her. And humanity has embraced sin over the years, just as God said they will. And our nature is to blame others for our problems, though. You made the woman. The snake made me do it. We're somebody else. But despite Adam being part of the whole deception, men, and especially church men, have tended to let him off a bit lightly. And Eve's sin has been used in so many ways by some churches and some so-called Christian societies to keep women from doing God's designated work and to justify injustices against women. And the devil has got to be laughing. I mean, why wouldn't he? But the end is already told, and this is the good news. You see, her offspring will win. Jesus will win. He does win. He has won. But it's for all eternity, and we know the end. And God cannot be thwarted. Amen. So God uses another woman. He brings, he uses Mary. And he uses her to carry out his redeeming plan of salvation. And he uses man. He uses um, Adam. I mean, oh, Adam, sorry. He uses Joseph to be her Isa. So God is not done with humans, with men, with women. His original plan has not changed. So he shows us all our social norms are not his. God breaks every human social taboo. He chooses Mary, a young unmarried woman, godly, trustworthy, a holy person, and a virgin. 
so that the birth of Jesus is humanly impossible. And Luke 1.30 tells us he uses an angel to break the news to her because it's just so unlikely. Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. He loves her. He's being kind. He's sending an angel so she can deal with this. And then God convinces the man to be her Ezer by sending an angel to Joseph too. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. This is Matthew 1, verses 20 to 21. So the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now Joseph was a God-fearing man who initially felt cheated on and humiliated, but he humbles himself in obedience and he does what God asks. So in this beautiful story of our Saviour's birth, we see God restoring the male concept of Isa too. He's her helpmeet, he's strong, he's the hero, he's the protector, the rescuer, the ally. He has to help to take Jesus to, um, to Egypt and to keep the Saviour safe to see that he actually grows up. So in this beautiful story, men's and women's integrity is restored. Isn't that beautiful? And it's the awesome news. And so the saviour of the world, God in human form, most high redeemer is born in circumstances that again turn all societal norms and expectations on their heads. Through Christ, God has recreated the model of men and women being created as easers, as helpers, heroes, allies to one another. And that is our true family model. You see, once again, God is saying, my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are my ways your ways. As the, higher, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than yours. And that's from Isaiah 55, um, verse, chapter 8. <coughs> Three, verse 8. Okay, so now Jesus championed, and he loved, and he honoured, and he talked, and he talked to women all the time. And he treated them as equals in intelligence and in worth. And these things he did were all practices that no self-respecting religious Jew would have done. And in the last couple of months, we've had quite a few teachings about the Pharisees. They wouldn't have done that. But he treated them as easers. They filled the roles of allies, of financial supporters, of friends, of followers, and gospel spreaders. So God sets the examples for us, doesn't he? And strangely... Although Jesus lived in an era of horrific human rights violations, he never tried to overthrow the social laws and the structures of the day. And sometimes we think, why? That's what the Jews of his time thought. They were expecting someone to come in on a horse and, and a, with an army. But Jesus, we see that Jesus came to change men's hearts because it's the only when we learn to love others God's way that all the other things around us will change. Just overthrowing the Romans wouldn't have changed anything. A new bad empire would have risen up instead. It's our hearts have to change first. So now, there are two Bible women that I specifically want to talk about today. About 1,700 people are named in the Bible. And only about 137 are women. And only 49 of those women speakers are actually named. Women who speak are named. So when women are mentioned, we do need to take note because it's rather seldom, so it's got an important significance there. 
and Paul, the disciple that I accused of being a misogynist when I was young, singled them out and praised these two women highly. They're Eunice, the mother, and the other is Lois, the granny of Timothy. And we know that Timothy became one of the early missionaries and disciples after Jesus. In the book of Acts 16, verse 1, Luke writes, Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but his father was a Greek. So here, Timothy is already a Jewish, but he's a believer. And this is where it begins. Paul takes him under his wing. And what we need to think is, did anyone influence this young man, Timothy, who Paul recommends so highly in his writings? His father was Greek, and it's not mentioned again, but his mother and grandmother were Jewish. So if you remember, being Jewish passes down from the mother, not the father. You get your son of name, but your identity is through the mother. Um, in 2 Timothy 1 verse 5, Paul commends Timothy and he says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded now lives in you also. So mums, are you listening? Timothy had a sincere faith. And Pastor Gregory Lamb says, the formative faith of Lois and Eunice in Timothy's life and conversion can hardly be overestimated. And it's um, something I was reminded of when Murray was talking, the effect that his mother has had in his family. The early teaching of Timothy's mother and grandmother are the foundations upon which his faith rests. His mother and grandmother are his early influences. In Timothy 2, um, 14 to 16, we see Paul exhorting him to be strong in the faith at a time of hellish persecution of Christians. Remember, Paul didn't grow up as a Christian. Paul grew up as a Christian killer. That was his job. And so he knows what happens to Christians, and it's not pretty. And so Timothy's youthful faith and zeal is actually amazing. And I was thinking about my own sons, and how would I feel if my boys were these zealous, out-there Christians in a time when they were, could quite easily be crucified or stoned to death or thrown to lions? And it's a terrifying idea. And so Timothy's faith is built on what he's actually learnt from his family, from his mum and his gran. And so um, Paul tells Timothy, but as for you, continue in what you've learnt and have become convinced of, because this is important, you know those from whom you learnt it. You know, it's people's examples that teach us the most, and how from infancy you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. In other words, you know your mother, you know your grandmother. They have set the example. They've outlived this faith. They've instructed you. You've seen how they live. Their faithful and, and faithful lives have convinced you. They taught you how to be both a Jew and a Christian. So what a commendation of these two women's lives. So mothers and grandmothers, and indeed dads, grandfathers, aunties, uncles, it's a most incredible responsibility to teach our children the Holy Scriptures from when they're small. Pray with your children, sitting together at the table, saying grace day after day, just being consistent, talking about God, singing, reading them the Bible stories. It starts in the cradle. 
This year, my little granddaughter just wanted to watch the story of Mary, Jophus and Jesus over and over and over and over and over at Christmas time. Same ones, over and over, but it's all settling there in her heart and she can talk about it. So it's the parents and the grandparents' job, not the schools, not even the church, really. We don't need to wait for them. We lay those foundations in our homes and the church can reinforce them. So why do we do that? Well, because Paul says in verse 16, all scriptures God-breathed, and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Can we have the worship team up now, please? To, God, to dads and grandfathers, this Mother's Day, I want to remind you that your wife is God's gift to you, and your children are God's gifts to you. Together, parents and grandparents, you have the most incredibly important job in the world, and that includes surrogate parents. If you're an adopted parent or you are someone who is looking after someone's children, if you play in the role of parent, I don't care whether they've come out of your womb or out of someone else's womb, this is the most important job you've got. And there's an African proverb that says, it takes a village to raise a child. And you know, Maori and Pacifica, they understand this concept really well too. It takes all of us to do the job well, to raise a generation that's better than the one that came before. That's what we want to do. Malachi 2.15 says, um, God's desire for all our families is for us to raise up godly offspring. But you know, it's our responsibility to bring up our children in the ways and love of Jesus. My dad was beaten by nuns at a school. My, some of our family members may have told us about the abusive practices they perhaps had in the name of religion. We don't want to do that. Kids don't do what we say, but they do what we do. So what we need to do is show them like Lois and Eunice. Show them you pray. Show them you love the Lord. And for mums and wives, if your husband's not yet a believer, don't lose heart, because keep praying for him. And if your children, if your adult children are not believers, keep praying for them. Because James 5.16 says the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So we need to believe that this promise of God will be answered in our lifetimes. Bring those family members back in with prayer. And finally, a word to dads this Mother's Day. It's been said that the greatest gift a father can give to his children is to show them that he loves their mother. Show them that you love their mother. Please, if anybody needs prayer for your husband or your children, your family, if you've got a broken relationship with your adult kids, come up and have some prayer. Or stand there and have some prayer.